Anin Tanisi, and welcome to Episode 3 of the Indigenous Land Rights and Reconciliation Podcast, Interacting with the State, Part 1. The Interacting with the State panels emphasize different legal regimes which currently define relationships between Indigenous peoples and the state. In this episode, we will hear from Julia Gilpin and Kareen Van Thun from the University of Ottawa on reconciling the Indigenous right to self-determination with mining development. And we will hear from Velden Coburn from Carleton University presenting lessons from the Algonquin Modern Treaty. Uh, well, thank you uh, so much to the organizers for uh, putting this together so far. So, so I'm so happy I cancelled my classes and, and I'm here instead. Although it's a nightmare to be here when you're a mother with kids returning to school and starting a new semester, but it was worth it. Um, so uh, originally I wrote this paper uh, by myself and that's why there's only my name in the program. But uh, recently I met Julia Gilpin uh, and, uh, and uh, from then on I decided I, I was going to uh, co-author uh, this paper. Uh, the one ca uh, one uh, warning is that the reason we haven't shared the paper uh, and uploaded online and shared it with you uh, is not that it was not ready. It's the first time I actually had the paper ready way in advance. But uh, we haven't had uh, been able to, um, we, uh, we're following, uh, this is a collaborative research, we're following a certain protocol of how to do things, and we haven't had the chance to present first to the, the community uh, this paper and then get their feedback, and this is why we have permission to present it, but not without revealing exactly where we're working and which mining company we're talking about. So that's why there's going to be some vagueness. And, uh, and also, um, <coughs> there will also be uh, some question that you may have that we will refuse to answer. And uh, it's not that we think uh, you shouldn't get an answer. It's, uh, again, out of uh, respect for the community, out of respect for their own, um, quote-unquote, politics of representation, that there are certain things we're just not going to going to share with you. But uh, yeah, so without further ado, I'm turning the mic to uh, <laughs> Julia. <laughs> Julia and Sengasson. But now, I'm going and I'm going to talk to you in the University of Ottawa. I'm going to talk to you in the University of Ottawa. Um, good afternoon. <laughs> My name is Julia, and the name that I was given is um, Blue Thunder Woman. Um, I'm from Iwishchi, which is where we're, the area that we're going to be talking about. Um, I'm, a, I'm currently a student at the University of Ottawa, and thank you all for being here today and being like. Um, and thank you for listening. <laughs> um, but yeah, I'm gonna stand up. <laughs> okay, um, protecting Iuyamun while mining the land. Uh, mining the land. Okay, so the three areas that we're gonna be talking about is the uh, the mining development, the relationships between the mining development, um, bank council, and the. I'm school, I'm school, which is Taliban. 
Um, so from the idea that the, um, the relationship between, well, first we're gonna focus on the relationship between the bank council and the mining development corporation. So um, from the bank council point of view, Socioeconomic development benefits that would benefit the community as a whole would be jobs, business opportunities, and training opportunities for their people. And that they, those, those could be run by their people also. And so because of a collaboration agreement with the mining company, they would be able to control um, the way Creek culture is established within policies and within um, the way that the mining company itself talks about Cree way of life, um, okay. okay, so this is the area that we're gonna be talking about. As she said, we're gonna be kind of vague because it hasn't, we, because of the collaboration that we made with the bank council, um, we are, like, we have to talk to them first in order for anything to be published. Thank you. Uh, and um, so this is gonna be the area we're talking about. There's three, there's nine communities, about, uh, and there's three different, like, t territories. So there's, like, um, um, what is it called? Huh? Yeah, there's, there's category one, two, and three. Mm -hmm. Okay, and social and cultural chapter. <sighs> Commitment and continue to recognize and the respect of traditional authority. And this is something that I was talking about uh, uh, before, is that the, the, because of the collaboration that they made with the, the mining company, they are able to um, instill Yuitun within the, um, the mine, where, how the mining does things, or how the mining um, communicates with the Taliban of the area. Because this area will uh, affect three different families. I'm school Jamal, like a, a tally man, three different families. Yeah. Okay. Good. Thank you. Okay. Um, <clears throat> so, yes, yeah, so in this paper, uh, what we're uh, doing is we're basically explaining how a, uh, the Cree Nation we're working with, um, this, the, out of its understanding of self determination as both including financial autonomy and the promotion, protection of the Cree way of life, and I'm not going to try my Cree today in front of you. Uh, so they negotiated a collaboration agreement. They decided they would be co-partners of the mine. They would not uh, suffer from the mine. They would not be its victims, in the word of, uh, of uh, the chief at the time who negotiated the agreement. And one particularity of that, uh, uh, that agreement is that it has a chapter called a social and cultural chapter where the company uh, commits to continue to recognize and respect the traditional authority of uh, what I will call the hunting boss or Taliban uh, <clears throat> in English. And it's not, it doesn't translate well. But uh, for the management and harvesting on the hunting t territories affected uh, by the man, mine. So there are three, uh, so the map that you saw earlier are uh, the little gray lines, are those uh, hunting uh, territories. And there are three territories that are directly impacted by the mine we're talking about today. One where the mine is located and the two others is because the access road from the James Bay Highway is crossing those, through those two uh, hunting uh, territory. So on paper, if you look at the argument on paper, it looks like 
there's really been a balance between uh, promoting uh, financial, well, not only promoting, but securing uh, the financial objectives, uh, socioeconomic uh, objectives, but also the human capital, uh, human capital, sorry for the very Western concept here, but uh, that's the word that they are also using uh, when they're talking about it. But the human capital of uh, the community in the terms that they would not just get jobs, but, you know, the, the low-key jobs. They would also get uh, training to be able to uh, have a, a higher, uh, ed, higher level uh, jobs at the, at the mine. But there's also that, uh, that uh, they also very consciously uh, try to uh, integrate within the agreement and uh, uh, a recognition of their own uh, traditional uh, system uh, of governance. Now, what's happening in practice is a little more complicated, and that's what I'm going to try to talk to you in uh, the six and a half minutes that are left. So, <clears throat> uh, in the conversation interview uh, we had had with the hunting buses of the three hunting territories that have been directly impacted by the mine, all have insisted that at first they had good relations with the mining company. The mine employees were very friendly with them. They told them they could ask for anything they needed if they were out of something. The urbanized village where most of the members of the Cree Nation live all year round is located a few hundred kilometers away by road from the mine and the hunting camp surrounding it. So the arrival of a mine providing lodging, catering, and basic health and social services to its fly-in, fly-out employees opened valuable close-by access to Cree resources to the hunting bosses and their family members that spend most of their uh, uh, year uh, near the mine site. And I also argue that the material assistance the company provided the Cree hunters uh, was welcome because it symbolized the company acknowledgement of what in some anthropologists have called the economy of reciprocity. And I, I very consciously uh, put that into quote because especially after the talks we've been having this morning, I know it's, I'm, I'm um, doing violence to the Cree concept that this idea of economy of reciprocity is trying to translate. But uh, so yeah, but but so the Cree hunters uh, felt that it, there was a recognition of the uh, their the economy of reciprocity that their traditional system of governance is uh, based on. Uh, sorry. On several occasions, the hunting bosses shared with us that their workload had increased since the company had visiting, visit, began visiting their lands. The electrified barrier that is around, along the mine uh, regularly electrocuted some animals. The heavy trucks entering and leaving the mine with speed were seriously injuring others. Some pine trees had lost their needles, while some algae had appeared on the lake under which the mine is uh, currently extracting uh, ore. So the Cree reciprocal relationships with animals, plants, water, spirit of the homeland they call UHG had therefore been profoundly disturbed by the extractive activities of the mining industry. And the hunting bosses therefore felt that it was their responsibility to monitor and help mitigate these disturbances. And since the company was causing these disturbances, the hunting bosses believed that the mining company ought to provide them with the material and human assistance they required to properly accomplish their stewardship duties. Initially, the company did, but a year before we started fieldwork in 2015, the company had informed the tree hunting buses living around the mine that from now on, it would only help them with food, gas, or transportation for emergency situations. When we began with, with, to meet with them, the families living near the mine expressed sadness and anger about the company's decision. 
from their point of view, these new limitations regarding the company's support of their stewardship duties uh, seem to indicate that the company was no more willing to fully acknowledge the economy of reciprocity that their traditional system of governance is based on. And as a result, that it was no longer eager to recognize and respect that system as it had promised to do when it signed the collaboration agreement. From the company's point of view, however, as you can imagine, these new limitations were legitimate. They resulted from their literal application of that agreement. It is important to note, and this is where it's getting more complex, we're not talking here about two conflicting ideology with the Cree all believe, uh, sharing one ontology and the non-Cree sharing, or the mine company sharing its own ontology. Uh, what is important to note that some, <laughs> To note here is that some Cree leaders with whom we spoke about this issue share the company's position. According to them, it is indeed not the responsibility of the extractive industry to provide material support to the hunting families directed, directly impacted by their activities. They believe that these families' requests to the company arose from a culture of dependence that more fundamentally is not Cree, but colonial, and it started with the HBC. The Cree, according to them, are self-sufficient. They do not need nor solicit any support from anyone because they live off their land. Nonetheless, from the point of view of the impacted families, the company's withdrawal of support did signify its lack of respect of, the tra of their traditional authority, and they found that situation extremely painful. As one of these hunting bosses shared with me, it made him feel as if he was, and I'm quoting him, a visitor in my own territory, and it hurts. This is a feeling further, and end of the quote, this is a feeling further shared the hunting bus that was not new. He first felt it when he was forcefully sent to residential school. When I reflect on that phrase, I feel like a visitor in my own territory and it hurts, I recall the conversation I had with the officer responsible for corporate social responsibility at the mine site when I visited it in 2016. When he was boasting about the many ways his company was collaborating with the Cree for the management of the mine's operation and its impact, his assistant remarked, and I'm quoting the assistant, we collaborate with the Cree because we are operating in Cree territory. End of the quote. The CSR officer immediately, CSR is corporal social responsibility, the CSR officer immediately corrected his assistant, stating, and I'm quoting it, wait a minute, we are first and foremost in Quebec. To which the assistant replied, well, I would rather say that we are first and foremost in Cree territory. To which the CSR officer retorted, but I mean, legally speaking, we are in Quebec. Through this exchange, it becomes clear that from this officer's point of view, the Cree are not a sovereign nation, but a conquered people who have ceded their territory to the settler state of Quebec when they signed the James Bay and Northern Quebec Agreement in 1975, becoming subject to its legislation and governance structure. The Cree may have rights, from this CSR officer point of view, <laughs> to their territory and may have traditional structures to govern them. But from this CSR officer point of view, these Cree rights, structures, and ways of relating to their territory are socio-cultural epiphenomena in relation to settler state law and authority. We are first and foremost in Quebec, Quebec legally speaking. This CSR officer, thankfully, no more works for the company. And based on conversation we had this summer with both impacted families and the Cree leadership, the relationship of the Cree, uh, sorry, of the, the relationship of the Cree community with the company has much improved. 
the hunting bus of the hunting territory where the mine is located has since been then been integrated to the committee that oversees the implementation of uh, various chapters of the collaboration agreement. His mother, partner, and himself has also finally been able to complete the construction um, and running the culture camp of the mindset that they had requested to the company when negotiating the collaboration agreement. And this may seem uh, like, you know, just uh, uh, very uh, superficial changes, but uh, when you speak to, the, to, to these tallymen, it's, 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 uh, for them it's, it's more than just superficial to have uh, their culture camp on the mindset. And I, I, I can go, I cannot go in detail here, but I can, you can, we can discuss that later. So overall, the Cree nation feels that it has managed to bring the company to meaningfully engage with the Cree way of relating the land. The hunting bus mother partner, uh, yeah, sorry. <laughs> the, over, uh, sorry. While tensions and challenges remain, the First Nation is confident that it has successfully reconciled protecting the Cree way of life with creating valuable socioeconomic opportunities and benefit for its people through mining its territory. Um, I'm going to go quickly because there's a lot of slides actually to this. Uh, it's more visual than anything because it lends itself a little bit better to the analysis that I want to uh, present here. Uh, so what I really want to uh, argue here, and I didn't upload the paper at all, but um, here are some of the arguments that, well, one, uh, about 10 kilometers north of here, uh, and I actually looked it up just in case, just for an anecdote for you, is, is apparently exactly 10.4 one kilometers from here is the boundaries of uh, one of the largest modern treaties in Canadian history, uh, my home territory, uh, the Algonquin territory here. Uh, I grew up in Pequawknagon, but it's only part of the Algonquin nation that I want to suggest here is actually it's not treaty negotiation and it's just not a treaty as we understand it commonly in sort of Canadian political values, but it's actually a, a little bit more insidious within international norms and, and rules and regulations is that it is an example of uh, um, territorial partition, secession, and then further annexation. So this should invoke um, a little bit more in terms of uh, lawful and also theoretical obligations and duties on the part of the colonial crown here. So. My argument being that the existence of a statutory instrument, and this just being a treaty, uh, frames the agreement, and this is probably within popular consciousness, as we kind of just say, well, you know, the state is, you know, has been doing treaties forever. That's just what it does. One, it's there to serve to further extinguish and modify indigenous title, but that's what it does. It's an agreement, it's a contract. Um, uh, but it, this frames the agreement as a legitimate compact between the parties, that being the Algonquins of Ontario, and the colonial crown. I want to suggest that while this frame obscures the illegitimacy of the covenant, there's a lot of arguments that a lot of people will say and that's been rehearsed uh, over and over again that most treaties are actually quite illegitimate. Uh, and, but this I want to frame more in international norms and law um, as well as uh, theories of territory. But uh, when viewed correctly, as I'll argue, is that it's actually annexation, and um, the true, which is the true political character of the modern treaty process. And that triggers a set of interests held by non-treaty partners. And these interests trigger a further set of obligations and duties on the part of the colonial crown. So, 
Let's start with Crimea because it's really relevant to the Algonquin territory. <laughs> most of the lessons I've kind of gleaned is from the territory and from the perspectives that most people have had. This is really fresh in the minds of the international community. Crimea, you can see the partitions. It's been partitioned recently, uh, last five years, by Russia. Uh, it's approximately 27,000 square kilometers. This compares to the Algonquin of Ontario territory that's up for grabs basically in the treaty is 36,000 square kilometers. So we see partition and that territory has been annexed. Most, you know, it, it says disputed there, but yeah, most of the, the, the world uh, agrees and the international community has been quite clear that um, it's wrong. It offends our sensibilities on the international geopolitical order. Canada actually quite, uh, is quite vocal about condemning what Russia did. This is just earlier this year as well on the fifth anniversary of the annexation by, you know, characterizing it as illegal invasion. And a few months later in May, spoke about the Crimean Tatars. They're actually the indigenous peoples to the Crimean Peninsula although they are standing up for the fact that it's uh, territory that falls under the sovereignty of uh, the Ukraine. Uh, again, sorry if I'm speaking really quickly and moving through this, but uh, I only have about 15 minutes. So again, it is, it is quite offensive for some reason. They seem to take issue with the idea that it would have been partitioned, um, that uh, Crimea eventually voted to secede from Ukraine and then accede, so cede its territory to Russia. And I'll talk a little bit about that here. But let's look at the Algonquin territory. Uh, sorry for those people that are from, say, Australia, Tim, is that uh, we are about right here. And I'll have a closer map of this. So this is Kingston. This is from this tip here. That's about 10 kilometers. Um, there, Ottawa. But this, uh, I mean, two-thirds of the territory that's kind of understood to be uh, Algonquin Anishinaabe territories in Quebec. Let me tell you a little bit more about the Algonquin Nation. So uh, I'm just going to pick up right where I left off. Uh, so Russia, interfering. Yeah, no. Uh, this is basically just a, a really quick kind of sketch. Again, I pointed out to where Kingston was, of basically the territory. You can't really see the division, but um, you see the line of the Ottawa River. That follows the Quebec-Ontario border for those that aren't from this part of the world. So I'll point to that as basically the partition. And that's kind of one of the international moves or kind of the uh, moves of aggression that the international community frowns upon, right? So if we go back to the Crimean statements uh, that uh, Minister Christia Freeland said, you know, it is a violation of territorial integrity. And this is one of the biggest issues too uh, for uh, peoples, right? And we're talking about land, so self-determination goes kind of hand in hand with territorial integ uh, integrity. It's not really viewed as, as such, right, as, you know, um, as partition, as we would partition a state or a nation. Uh, you know, there's some of the more famous ones that uh, even the more cursory glance at history, like the partition of Poland or, you know, other partitions that have gone on in recent years. You know, some are friendly that are some, somehow kind of allowed, like the uh, secession and uh, like the partition of Sudan, I think, was one of the more recent ones that was sort of acquiesced to in the international community. But... Um, here's one of the quotes from one of the Quebec chiefs uh, from Quebec, you know, talking about basically is the exclusion, which I'll get to more, is that this was actually a territorial partition. 
Uh, we've crossed the border, no problem. We never really think of it. it you know, it's always been there is that we've known as the Kitchissippi, which is the Great River in Anishinaabe Moen. Um, but it's basically that border that now plays a big role in the partition of the Algonquin uh, nation's territory comes out of the Constitutional Act 1791, which followed, I guess, the uh, French-British War where the British uh, eventually prevailed. So that created Upper Canada, Lower Canada, which eventually would become Ontario-Quebec borders. Um, you can see this now. So this is the Ontario side, basically. And this is the 36,000 square kilometers, which is subject to the uh, modern treaty because, well, the Algonquin, we've never ceded or modified our uh, in Indigenous title to the territory. It's only the Ontario side that is up for negotiation right now. And uh, again, so yeah, Kingston, just some sort of our coordinates. So now we're talking about a particular territory that begins to exclude the other side. Um, it seems to sort of follow, and I, I go back to Crimea to, to lend a little bit of uh, empirical evidence of kind of the trajectory of how things go, because we do know a little bit about the treaty process of you know, several hundred years is, um, you know, negotiating it, then the government ratifies it, they create a treaty, and they make it into law through finalization by introducing it into Parliament in Canada. That's basically what happened really quickly in, uh, in Crimea and Russia. They had their uh, referendum, which, you know, 97% said, yes, we want to join the Russian Federation. Uh, I was going to call this presentation the Ides of March, just because everything happened in the middle of March. Basically, the you know the the Roman idea that you know after the Ides of March is like you know prepare to settle. Uh, March seventeenth, two thousand sixteen is uh, after about thirty four years, thirty thirty four thirty five years of sort of uh, my community Pickwaknagon having established this through a petition to the Crown, which only began with us saying. We want you to recognize that we have title and rights to this. It was never anything to say, hey, let's start negotiating this and negotiate it away. But again, it sort of matches, and, and this is almost the planned trajectory too, is that, well, we had a referendum on an agreement in principle, which will be the backbone of the eventual treaty. So I don't know how much we'll, uh, we'll change too much in it, some of the details, but then it'll be ratified and it will become the treaty. That's the title that it'll become. And uh, so looking at the treaty, basically from what Crimea is, you could swap out the words, the Algonquins of Ontario and Canada for the Republic of Crimea and Russia. Basically, it's, it's not going to have that title at all whatsoever. But for all intents and purposes, when you start seeing that, well, on this side of the Kitchissippi, is that it's going to secede from the rest of um, the, the Quebec side, and then basically cede all the territory to the crown in the same fashion that the international community regarded uh, the annexation of Crimea to Russia. There's, you know, and, and for the conspiracy theorists in me too, is saying like, um, is, is this really what is going on? Because people, we're at Queens. We're just walking 10 kilometers away from where this is happening and none of us bat an eye in my community. We take it very personally, too. Much different than people saying, well, that's the Crown just does treaties. They get into contracts, whatever. But um, then they say it was much different amongst Crimea than it was with what's happening here. Very quickly, there was military occupation. 
However, if you want to see the map, we're dotted around the sides by foreign military occupation. If you think it's hyperbole, even the Canadian state and other states will think it's kind of an offense to the uh, territory's jurisdiction and sovereignty if anyone's wearing foreign soldier garb or what have you coming into our country. Uh, it's unceded territory with a foreign military occupation. So you see all these points, and they're literally all around the border of the Algonquins of Ontario's nation's territory. We do live in a military, military uh, foreign military occupation or occupied territory. They don't march down the streets with guns and you know steal us. They still do. They they but that's social workers now. Um, sorry, social workers in in here. Um, they do. They use their paramilitary forces. They just there's a state police, right? And if anyone thinks I'm overreaching. Yeah, we have our, uh, there's, there's a couple of examples that we can point to in recent history, like Elsie Pugtug, Wet'suwet'en back in, in January. And if you want to see what the military will do when they send 4,000 of their own troops against indigenous people, just on the other side and shared uh, Haudenosaunee, and it's mostly, it's, I'd say it's Haudenosaunee and, and Kanastagi, um, Wazoka, right? It's happening again. Pardon? It's happening again. Yeah, I, t tensions are flaring up. They want their golf course, and they want to put it over sacred sites, right? They want to tee off over tombstones. So we do have this. We do have, um, and I'm moving quickly because I only have another couple minutes, I bet, is, well, this is kind of, this is actually secession, right? This is the same way that it was secession, and through the same mechanisms that Crimea moved over towards uh, Russia. One of the more overlooked implications, if we take this out of the realm of just being normal treaty process, is it actually triggers a lot of uh, obligations and duties that are owed to others. And we should ask ourselves what actually is also owed in terms of reciprocity from breaking away from not just the rest of the Algonquin nation, but there are others, um, especially right here in this particular territory of um, our Haudenosaunee friends, that we have our own territorial uh, sort of diplomacy and treaties with, for example, the dish with one spoon, and I'll talk about that just in a little bit, about the theoretical implications of that particular treaty. But we're also part of a confederacy, uh, the Seven Nations, the Central Fire is at uh, Ganawage. These were questions, and if, and if we want to see what this means, uh, we can have recourse to domestic law, is the Supreme Court ruled in 1998 on the reference case to Quebec separatism, is that in a confederation, uh, a federated unit has to negotiate their way out. They just can't unilaterally secede. The way that the Crown is actually enticing uh, the Algonquins of Ontario. They are leaving out 10,000 legitimate Algonquins on the other side of the Kitchizippi. So again, that partition wasn't put there by us. It was put there by an outside foreign state, divided us, takes the others, well, I guess the more desirable spot or the, those who are willing to talk about it, and exclude them. So we have to ask ourselves, okay, what kind of duties and obligations are owed to them? Um, and what kind of interests do they still have in this particular region? And uh, just to give you a sense uh, of the Algonquin 
communities that are remaining on the Quebec side that will have no say whatsoever, and again, their interest in the territory over here uh, will be modified or extinguished based upon whatever prevails in this particular treaty when it is essentially annexed for all intents and purposes by the colonial crown. Um, two more quick slides to give you some kind of uh, point to where I was going with this is basically, well, there's the treaty politics. It's always been suspect by indigenous peoples. Uh, we can go back through treaty jurisprudence, back to the days where it was just viewed as yeah, just words, a gratuitous promise that was never upheld. Those were back in the days where the courts said, well, indigenous people, they weren't actually, they had no legal status as a, a legal agent. So they could never enter into these treaties in the first place. Therefore, we can ignore them. They, they're not human. So they lack that capacity, the legal capacity to enter into this to make it binding. And then they sort of view it as um, contractual, the contractualist view just you know, between two parties, but that's subordinate to, I guess, the supremacy of parliaments where uh, doctrines of legislative uh, superiority can just wipe those out. You can't, be, you can't bind future parliaments to, I guess, a contract that wasn't previously. Uh, then international covenants, just again, more promises, and eventually sort of some, uh, you know, more advancements in jurisprudence says, well, these are actually uh, foundational documents to our constitution in Canada. So, but I mean, that's the real politic is that they can just change how they view treaties. That's what lends itself to the particular frame that I'm trying to bring into focus here is that, well, they're framing it as a legitimate contract. Those are all legitimate, but they're contracting out of what would be illegal under international law or very offensive, which is actually the annexation of a territory and then superseding any obligations and duties that the crown, the, the acquiring uh, uh, state of this territory would actually owe to others like say the Haudenosaunee through our Dish With One Spoon Treaty. I'll explain that in just a second. Um, and the other Algonquins, for example, too. Uh, another point too is that Quebec separatism would also be de facto annexation of the Algonquin territory north of the Kitchissippi. Uh, last couple points, sorry, I'm kind of a bit of a theorist and, but do the Canadian politics stuff, but some of the uh, implications that we can see would affect uh, how the Crown actually conducts itself in treaty negotiations if it were properly understood as actually secession or enticing another territory to secede from its own nation and then become annexed to the Crown is that, um, and I'm running out of time here, but there are a few points here. One of the things, and, and I, I've been greatly influenced because I, I return to it just, you know, not just, um, a, a lot of the time it's mostly for my own empirical saying like, okay, so what did Margaret Moore say about this particular phenomena within her political theory? And I see when she says something like this, but there's a few things that should be adapted. So general theories, but for here, I wanted to point out ideas of, of uh, genocide and population ethics. So Crimean Tatars and Algonquin Anishinaabe so lends itself again to the legitimacy of negotiating with people who are still undergoing genocide. Is that a real just arrangement? I mean, you say it's unjust, right? It's the exploitation of, it's, it's an adverse sort of position anyways. Uh, in contract law, really it's exploitative, for example, 
you would think that for those like the Crown, they would have a positive duty to mitigate the poor condition of the Anishinaabe or the Algonquin people, the ones that they had perpetrated genocide upon, uh, to bring them back whole again, to be a negotiating partner on levels that they would otherwise. Uh, question of distributive justice, um, settler versus indigenous ethics of consumption, basically uh, pointing out the greed of the settler crown, settler sufficiency. If there was indigenous, why would they have to come and take more than they actually need? If you, um, you know, doctrine of, of sufficiency would say like, you know, you, meeting your needs rather than your wants when it's in a territory where you actually don't have further rights, which you're trying to acquire through the treaty. So we have our dish with one spoon with the Anishinaabe or the um, Mississaugas, and it's uh, held by the Haudenosaunee, and it's part of this region here is basically, um, and do I have a picture of it? No, I don't, but uh, it's, it's a wampum belt that says, um, it lends itself to the idea of sufficiency and uh, consumptions that yes, we understand our borders being here. You're free to cross those borders, to come in and take what you need, not more than what you want. We are going to eat, we are going to treat the territory as one dish, and we're all going to eat with one spoon. And it's going to be a spoon because you can't kill one another with a spoon. You can't stab them to death like you can. You don't bring a knife to this kind of uh, environment. And uh, so again, making the case for essentially what is otherwise the annexation under the cover of saying it's just treaty negotiations. So um, I'll leave it at that. Thank you. Unfortunately, due to technical issues, the presentation by Timothy Goodwin of the Victorian Bar on Reconciliation and Land Rights in Australia was unable to be recorded. In lieu of Mr. Goodwin's presentation, this episode will feature a section of the post-presentation workshop discussion. So my question is for you, Timothy, and I'm, I, my question is about the treaty-making process just as you're observing it so far. Because I know in the Canadian context, a really significant factor has been how the existing legal environment structures the bargaining position of the, position, of the participants, right? Um, and that is a huge element of how the treaty making process goes, right? Like as long as the existing environment is as it is, the capacity of the parties to walk away, right? The, you know, the risks that they run, how, str how strong their bargaining position is, is really structured. And I'm wondering if that's also the case in what you're seeing in Australia. Yeah, it's, um, I don't know if this is working. Um, oh, here we go. Um, yeah, it's a really, it's a fascinating context because the treaty process has really come about because of sustained political action by by a social movement in favour of it um, and a little bit of um, right time, right government activity on a state-based level. We've, we have... Uh, our federal government has been conservative um, for a very long time now. Um, even our... Um, even when we had a left government um, at a federal level for six years, they 
did very little. Um, it's hard to get a national consensus on Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander politics ever since the passage of the Native Title Act, really. Um, and so... Um, uh, um, people, um, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders who focused on a treaty as, as a form of, um, uh, of, a, of a political sovereignty movement, um, focused on state governments, state and territory governments, and had some success there, um, particularly in Victoria, South Australia and in Northern Territory. South Australia elected a new government and abandoned their process, sadly, um, at least sadly for the for, um, traditional owners in South Australia, but Victoria's pretty down the track. It's been a number of years now, but there's, there's a legislative framework for their, for at least the process um, uh, of establishing this representative body. Um, but it is, I think your question is raises a really important point. There's nothing, and, and South Australia proves this, there is absolutely nothing stopping a state government just walking away from the entire process. There's very little leverage other than political action and political pressure that Aboriginal people can bring to bear. Um, but we form such a small part of the proportion of the population, so that political power is more moral than it is anything else. Um, so uh, it's you can feel the fragility when you talk about the treaty process. Um, there's no um, constitutional law basis for it. Um, it's not invalid as a constitutional process for a state government to do it, but there's no actual positive power. So there are... Um, uh, so it's... And, and that's why once, we, once there's start to be talk about Aboriginal aspirations and demands, that's going to be when it gets hard, because right now it's all, it's all lovely and it's all about political participation and it's, you know, Aboriginal people are getting to represent their uh, electors to go to talk to government about this process and the government keeps on talking about self-determination and economic self-governance and, you know, kind of motherhood statements and it's all really, you know, so a Melbourneian can feel really good about this process we're going going down, um, but that's the, you know, the, I just think it's inevitable that there will be requests for land back, just put simply, we want our land back, and that's when um, the proverbial, you know, kind of crap's going to hit the fan, um, because the government's not going to want to do that, no matter how progressive they are, and, um, and that's going to be a fascinating line in the sand where a lot of Aboriginal people are going to think, is this, is, is, the, is a political participatory power sharing model enough for me, or, or um, rather than the idea of actual territory? Hello, um, Timothy. So I don't know a whole heck of a lot, but I've been following a couple of, um, of a couple of um, Aboriginal people on Facebook, and they're doing a lot of advocacy work about what's going on right now in Australia. And I'm wondering how the pr two specific problems, one with the birthing trees and one with WEM clothing gaining exclusive rights to the Aboriginal flag, how that can actually affect, or is it actually affecting treaty process? 
birthing, oh, sorry, the birthing trees in particular, because that's about Victoria. So that's the state of Victoria. So just briefly for context, there's the state government is building a highway and um, have determined rather than move the highway um, around what is um, said by the Jabwarung to be very sacred trees that would be required to be cut down or that the highway would go very close to, the government's stuck to its heels and in a very complicated way the, you know this kind of you know the classic conquer and divide politics that governments play um, they entered into an agreement with an Aboriginal um, group around cultural heritage that Aboriginal group is now defunct um, and there were questions over its legitimacy by local people for a long time in any event um, and so now the traditional owners are like we were left out of that process we had no say and now you're building a highway through our birthing trees and that's that's going to play a part because the government wants to focus on these positive statewide initiatives that they that they're doing and and you're right there's this the the something that I'm very proud of in Australia in particular is that a lot of the social movements that are coming up now are being led by young Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander activists and that is one case in hand. So that, that you know, that is a threat against Aboriginal participation in the treaty mechanism because it's like, well, if we can't protect our birthing trees, why, what are we going to do in terms of this, how can we trust you in a treaty process? Um, the Aboriginal flag is, you know, is a, a little different um, because it's about copyright law. So, again, very briefly, an Aboriginal man create, you know, designed the Aboriginal flag in the, in the 1970s, so he has copyright as a matter of Western law over the image of the flag, but he's always turned a blind eye to Aboriginal people using it for community purposes or health or education. Um, he sold it onto a company and there's, um, that has previously phoenixed itself under commercial law because of um, its abuse of Aboriginal art without proper foundation and now they are sending cease and desist letters to a whole bunch of Aboriginal organisations who are using the flag um, and um, because they don't have licences to do so um, and so it's completely turned on its head the idea of this being a community owned event and Harold Thomas the creative flag is a, is a very complicated man um, uh, and, um, and so uh, it's, that's raising issues around you know identity and uh, you know and who owns what and I mean he did design it but does copyright law properly um, protect that and then Aboriginal people are actually a number of Aboriginal people are calling for the state to purchase it back so at least the Australian government owns it now that that's you know that to to, to to for that to be a solution is how drastic the situation is. It's a, it's a bad day when you want the Australian government to own our flag. Miigwech, Ekosi, and thank you for listening to Episode 3, Interacting with the State, Part 1. Episode 4, Non-Indigenous Understandings of Land, focuses on largely Western ideas regarding the ontology of land and the relationships between people, the state, and the land, offering a critical perspective on the dominant colonial approaches to land which have historically guided our understandings of land and land rights. Thank you.
The Indigenous Land Rights and Reconciliation Project is funded by the Government of Canada's Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council and Forskningsgradet, the Research Council of Norway. We would also like to thank the Department of Political Studies and the Centre for the Study of Democracy and Diversity at Queen's University and Globalizing Minority Rights at UIT, the Arctic University of Norway, for their sponsorship and organizational support. Special thank you to CFRC Kingston for their assistance in coordinating this podcast and to traditional artist Patty Kusterock. Thank you for listening to this podcast produced at CFRC 101.9 FM in Kingston, Ontario at Queen's University, situated on the traditional territory of the Anishinaabe and Haudenosaunee peoples. The CFRC Podcast Network at podcast.cfrc.ca is brought to you by the generous support of the Queen's University Faculty of Engineering and Applied Sciences. Thank you.